You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Genesis 14, here's what we're looking at. Uh, We are going through this life of Abraham. God has made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham uh, has meandered a little bit. Uh, He's learning how to walk with God. And today we're going to see his his walk uh, has really grown. Uh, But he made some mistakes. He went down to Egypt, went the wrong place. And in Egypt he came out very, very wealthy. Uh, God had blessed him abundantly. He and Lot leave Egypt, come back to the promised land. And they're so wealthy as as they leave Egypt and come back to the promised land that the land can't hold them all. And uh, Lot being more selfish, uh, Lot not really uh, uh, being led by the Spirit, but being led by his flesh, looks up and he chooses the, the best area for himself. And we studied all this together. This is just a review. What area did he choose for himself? What was the name of it? Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a beautiful, uh, really fertile, verdant land, lush vegetation. And you didn't have to work very hard to have a really good crop there. So wealth came easy in Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Lot goes down that direction Abram goes into the promised land and goes to Mamre, and uh, that's where the story picks up. While Lot is there in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, there were these kings that were all gathered together, and they had an alliance. Uh, The chief king was Qadar La Omar, and he had eight other kings paying him tribute Eight other kings that were vassal kings, they were together. They were like, uh, hey, if anybody attacks us, uh, we'll be unified in this. And that was a pretty common thing that happened in that day. Well, five of these kings rebel against Qadar La Omar. They had paid him tribute for 12 years. And in the 13th year, they quit paying tribute. Uh, All of this was discussed in the early verses of chapter 14. They quit paying tribute. Well, that didn't go over real well with Qadar La Omar. So he gets an alliance of four kings, the strongest kings, who didn't break ties with uh, this, this, uh, this alliance. And they go down and they wipe out the five kings. And they take all of the land captive. Uh, they bring everybody that they've taken and they take them back into uh, King Qadar La Omar's uh, territory and, the, and, uh, and they take all the booty, all the plunder, everything with them and Lot is one of those guys. And Abram hears about it. And Abram single-handedly goes down and uh, uh, takes over and risked everything to, uh, to bring his nephew back out. Let's pick up in our story. We left off last week or two weeks ago. Uh, Pastor JC did a great job last week on that baptism talk, by the way. Really enjoyed that. And uh, Lisa and I had our anniversary. We uh, took a little a week away and uh, really enjoyed our, our uh, anniversary time. And uh, so two weeks ago, we left off in verse... I think we got as far as verse 16. Let's back up to verse 13. Um, And this is where this, uh, uh, again, these kings have come in and they've taken everything captive, including Lot. Uh, So 14, 13, are you there? Uh, Then one of them who had escaped, that's one of the the captives who who had been conquered by King Qadar La Omar. Uh, One of them had escaped and came and told Abram, the Hebrew. First use of the word Hebrew there, God sanctifying his man and making a nation out of this one man. Uh, first use in the Bible of, of the word Hebrew. Uh, he comes and he tells Abram, for he dwelt there by the Timberth trees in Mamre. Uh, and uh, jump down to 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, 
he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went out in pursuit as far as Dan. Uh, just amazing. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, here is this nephew who has really wronged him. And he hears that his nephew's in trouble. And he risks everything to go and get him. Uh, here we see what a man of faith does. Here we see what a man of faith, a man walking with God, how he behaves. He forgives those who wrong him. He loves those who don't deserve it. Yeah, this is, uh, he's a picture of, of the love of Jesus here, if you will. And Dan was about 150 miles north of Mamre. It's way, way up north. So he's, he's, this is quite a journey. And uh, he's risking everything, right? I mean, he's taking all of his, his uh, servants and, and uh, leaving his land uh, vulnerable. And, uh, you know, Abram could lose everything right here. Verse 15, uh, so he divided his forces against them by night. Uh, that's against these uh, other kings that he's going against. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobar, which is north of Damascus. That's another 50 miles north. So that's about a 200-mile journey now. And look at this, verse 16. He brought back all the goods, and he brought back his brother Lot and all his goods, as well as all the women and all the people. Uh, war is brutal. And you can imagine some of the things that were happening here as these soldiers take all the, the booty, all the loot, all the women, everything. Everyone is taken captive. And Abram goes back and single-handedly uh, with his army uh, defeats these four kings who had just beat five kings uh, this is a supernatural blessing. And we looked at all of that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so here we get into new territory now. Uh, here we see, this is where we left off. Um, uh, verse 17, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are now going to come and thank Abram for saving their skins, right? And bringing back their wives and their, uh, all their stuff. And, and uh, look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedar La Omar and the kings who were with him, the other kings that were with him. I mean, this is miraculous, right? Uh, they can't believe it. Uh, all of their five kings were defeated by this, and this guy... One guy with his army comes back victorious. And they're like in awe, right? They come out to meet him and to thank him and to say, wow, you're amazing. Uh, I want to skip verse 18 through 20 and come back to that. Let's get the story of these kings first. Uh, now, the king of Sodom, uh, jump down to 20, 21. Now, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, that's the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the other kings that were with him, right? The kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other kings said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Abraham, you can keep all the plunder. We're just thankful to be alive. We're just thankful to have our people back. We're just thankful to be a, uh, uh, a city again, a, you know, to have a have our kingdom back. We're so thankful for that. You can keep all of the goods for yourself. And look at what Abram's reply is. Uh, by the way, how much wealth would that be? That'd be a ton of wealth, right? I mean, that would be a ton. These five different kingdoms, all the wealth, all the plunder from five different kingdoms. He says, you can keep it all. And look at Abram's answer. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. Everyone raise your hand to the Lord. I've raised my hand to the Lord. Keep your hand up. I've raised my hand to the Lord, God of the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And I said, I will not take anything. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap to a post-it note, I won't take anything. 
that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. That was his vow. You can put your hand down. Uh, uh, this was the vow that he made. He says, I don't want anything lest you should say, I made Abram rich. Where does Abram want all of the glory going to? To God. I don't want any alliance with you. I don't want this to be misconstrued in the future. I don't want anyone to say that you made me rich. It's God who has blessed me. Uh, verse 24. Uh, the only thing that he'll take, he says, is, is uh, whatever the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Amir, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. The guys who aren't, uh, those were uh, neighbors of Abram's that weren't part of his clan. But Abram says, nobody in my clan will take anything of yours. And uh, what an amazing story. I mean, here Abram risks everything, even his life, to rescue the man that wrong, wrongs him. God gives him this supernatural victory, just astonishing, against all odds, right? Like, how did this happen? Well, God was involved. No other way. It was a miraculous victory, the incredible grace of God to save a wicked sinner like Lot, right? Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God gives Abram the victory to save Lot. Why? Because Lot is a child of God, even though he's backsliding right now. And aren't you glad that God will pursue you when you mess up? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just leave us alone when we sin? I know me. I don't know about you. I know me. When I sin, the Holy Spirit hounds me. Dave, what was that? What about that? And aren't you thankful? The Bible says those who he loves, he chastises. If you receive his chastisement, rejoice. You're a son. If you don't receive it, you might want to be worried, right? Uh, if you can sin and not even be convicted, uh, you might want to be worried. And here I'm in awe of God's work. He, he blesses Abraham to go save Sinner Lot. Uh, what an amazing God. And here Abram risks everything and he comes back and, and says uh, the kings offer him all the wealth, all the fine goods. Think about the unique treasures that must have been there. You know, the gold, the silver, uh, all kinds of very unique artifacts. And Abram would not allow anything from Sodom and Gomorrah to come into his life and to come into his home. Wow. Pretty insightful for us. I don't want any of that stuff coming into my house. Not the silver, not the gold, not the goods, not the HBO, not the showtime, none of it. Why? Because I don't want my, ho my house and my life defiled with the wickedness of the world. How does Abraham come to this point? How does he get here? Well, it tells us that Abram is growing in his faith, that he is learning some things. Abraham has learned that he has found freedom in walking with God. Freedom, I mean, having a relationship with his creator. He doesn't want to entangle himself or his family with the wickedness of the world because he is enjoying the freedom that he has found in walking in God's ways. Uh, I just have, uh, had my 35th wedding anniversary, and I am so thankful. I have never had to worry about a disease. Do you know why? Because we've had total fidelity in our marriage. I don't have to worry about any of the evils of the world coming into my house because we have tried to follow Jesus to the best of our ability. And there is a freedom that comes into our life when we walk in those ways. Abraham has experienced that. And he doesn't want to get entangled with the bondage of the world. Isn't it interesting? Think of this. Isn't it interesting that much of the suffering that we go through, 
Much of the hardship is self-inflicted by the things that we willingly bring into our own homes. We talk with uh, someone and we say, well, man, I'm, ad- I'm, a- I'm addicted. You are? Yeah, I'm addicted to X, Y, Z. Uh, it might be alcohol. It might be materialism. It might be uh, the love of money. You know, you're in debt now. It might be uh, something you smoke, something you take. I mean, something you drink. I have a lot of different things. I'm addicted to X, Y, Z. And you ask, well, how did XYZ get into your house? How did XYZ get into your life? Well, I I willingly brought it in. I started going to these parties, or I started going to this computer, or I started going to this place, and I started doing... And we willingly bring it into our life, and we bring affliction upon ourselves. Abram refused to take any of Sodom's goods. Why? Lest he become bound to the things of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lest he become obligated to the things of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a theological term for this. What's that theological term for you scholars? What's that term? Anybody? You'll know it as soon as I say it. Abraham refused to touch any of the stuff of the world, doesn't want it coming into his house. That term is called sanctification. Say it with me. Sanctification. Here's what it means. It means to be set apart to the Lord. And what is Abraham doing? Abraham is sanctifying himself to God. He's saying, I don't want any of the filth of the world. Why? Because I found life in Christ. I found life in my relationship with God. I don't want to go backwards. I've already done that. I went back to Egypt. I trusted in Egypt. I trusted in the things of the world. You know what it brought me? What did it bring him? Bondage. It brought damage to my marriage. It brought damage to my family. It brought damage to my soul. It brought damage to my life. Nothing good came out of it. I don't want to be associated. I want to sanctify myself to the Lord. Sanctification simply means setting yourself apart for God's use. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't mess up anymore. It means that you continually set yourself apart. I wake up every morning and I try to set myself apart to the Lord. I say, Lord, yesterday I sinned, I did this, and I bring those sins before him. Lord, please forgive me. I thank you so much for your grace. And today I want to walk with you. And here's my day, Lord. Here's what I have on my calendar today. I need your strength in this meeting so that I handle this your way. That I don't boast or that I don't lie or that I don't take a shortcut here. And then at this time, at this meeting, I've got some difficult things to say. And it would be far easier not to say them. Lord, help me to stand for truth at this next meeting. And then tonight at family time, Lord, here's what's going on in my son's life and here's what's going on in my daughter's life and here's what's going on in whatever, my wife's life or whatever and here's what I want to try to build in them, Lord. And and I start my day in prayer. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm saying that to illustrate. What is that? What am I doing? I'm what? Sanctifying myself. I'm saying, Lord, my life is yours. And I want to walk in your ways. And if we think that happens naturally, we'd be crazy. What happens naturally? We sin naturally. That's what it means to have a sin nature, right? It means we sin naturally. And sanctification always happens on purpose. It never happens on accident. Uh, He sanctifies himself. Notice When did he sanctify himself, Abram? When did he sanctify himself? It says here, let's read it again, verse uh, 
22, Abraham said to the king, I have raised my hand to the Lord. Now he does a little witnessing. By the way, my Lord, Yahweh, he is God most high. He is the God who is above all of your fake gods, Sodom and Gomorrah king. All of the things you worship, they're fake. My God is the God most high. Not only that, he's the possessor of what? Heaven and earth. He created everything you've ever touched, King Sodom. Everything he's created. And now look at this. I made a vow that I will not take I will take nothing, not even a thread, not a sandal strap, not anything that is yours. Uh, when did he make that vow? Let me hear from you. When did he make that vow? Before he went out where? Before he went out where? You're right. I just want to get the whole thing. Before he went out where? Before he even went out to battle. This is what sanctification is. Oh, Lord, I'm going to go to battle. And Lord, I need you to give us victory. There is no way in the world I could ever get victory. I'm going against a, an alliance of kings who just defeated five strong areas, right? Five strong territories. Lord, there's no way I can do this. But I'm doing this for your servant Lot's sake. Even though he's backsliding, Lord, I know you love him. Lord, give me victory. I want to go... I, and Lord, I'm going to be tempted, if you do give me victory, I'm going to be tempted to think what? To think I did this. To think I'm amazing. To think I deserve this. I know myself. I'm entitled. Lord, uh, Lord, I make a vow right now. I won't take a single post-it note to myself. Because I don't want to have any fellowship with what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he makes that vow in advance. Uh, very, very wise. Um, Abraham, uh, again, is discovering that life and life abundant is in God, not in the things of the world. There's an interesting passage in, in uh, well, I'll even go bigger than that. Romans is a fascinating book. And it is a, a treaty on theology. If you're a, uh, a Christian, you should know Romans like the back of your hand. And I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me. The first three chapters of Romans, Paul does something very specific. He shows that all the world is guilty before God, before a holy God, because of our sin. Uh, the first three chapters culminate with Romans 3.23 that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not any person anywhere who hasn't sinned. And Paul goes through three chapters to make that point. Chapter 4 and 5, he does something very interesting. In chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, he shows us that even though we've all sinned, we can all be saved by faith. And that salvation has always been a free gift entirely by faith. And he lays it out brilliantly in, in chapters 4 and 5. That salvation has always been by faith. Uh, that's just how God uh, has done this, right? It's a free gift. Uh, so that's chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 6, he does something very interesting. He says... Well, if we've always been saved by faith, and it has nothing to do with our performance, why don't we just sin that grace may abound? If what we do makes no bearing on our salvation, and it doesn't, it's all what Jesus did for us. Well, if that's the case, that is so amazing, then why do we even try? Why don't we just sin that grace may abound? It's a good question, right? If you really understand salvation, that it's all the work of Jesus, has nothing to do with my own righteousness, I could never earn it, well then, hey, why not just sin that God's grace may abound into my life? 
I remember when I was a very young Christian, uh, I was uh, serving at Maranatha Chapel under Pastor Ray Bentley, the late Pastor Ray Bentley, a dear friend, I miss him. And he took me under his wing and took me through Romans. And we got to this passage and he says, Dave, you, I, remember, I remember this sentence verbatim. It was like God just wrote it on my heart. He said, Dave, you haven't taught God's grace properly until people ask this question after your teaching. Well, then why not just sin that God's grace may abound? People do not understand grace unless they ask that question. And Paul answers that question of why we don't just sin so that God's grace may abound. And the answer goes like this. I'll put it on your screens. But, it, uh, but he says this in Romans 6.15. Do you not know that whatever you choose to obey is going to master you? Now, do you want sin mastering you or do you want Jesus mastering you? The reason we don't just sin is not because to earn our righteous, that's given to us freely. It's so that we can now live free, not under bondage. Let's read the passage together. Uh, let me hear you in a unified thundering voice. Don't you realize that what you become, excuse me, let's start over because I messed up. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? Stop there. Stop there. Do you realize that? Do you realize if you take HBO into your house and you start watching immoral entertainment, guess what you're going to be a slave to? If you take pornography into your computer, guess what you're going to be a slave to? If you go to the grocery store and you buy some alcohol and you put it in the pantry or the whatever, guess what you're going to be a slave to? Do you want to be a slave or do you want to be free? Which one do you want to be? Abram is realizing, I don't want to be a slave. I want to walk in the glorious freedom that comes from walking with God. I don't want to touch any of your stuff. Let's read the rest of it. Uh, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Your choice, your choice, God gives you that choice. You can choose to be a slave to sin and be in bondage if you want to. Ask Lot how well it's going. Or you can choose to be a slave of God, a servant of the creator of the universe, and live your life in amazing freedom. We think that sin satisfies, and what we learn is that it, it, it brings us into bondage. And Abram sanctified himself long to God long before the battle. Abram is learning that sin doesn't satisfy, and he knew he would be tempted. He prepared in advance. He actually raised his right hand to God. Uh, that's a good prayer life, right? Lord, I'm sitting here, I'm praying, and, and the Lord, right now, I've got this meeting at 11 o'clock, and Lord, right now, I just raise my hand to you, and Lord, I want to walk this way in this meeting. Lord, please empower me. That's a good walk with the Lord. That's what real faith looks like. That's what a real prayer life looks like. That's what sanctification looks like. We see clearly Abraham sanctified himself to God. Here's the question. Are you? Are you? Have you discovered the abundant life that is there in Jesus? Or are you still thinking the things of the world are going to bring you satisfaction and pleasure? Sin does bring pleasure for a brief second, and then it brings bondage. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, and life more, what? Abundantly. Free. It requires sanctification. There's a, uh, a great man of faith in church history named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you ever read any of his works? Uh, he was a, 
a, uh, a pastor during the time of World War II, and he did an amazing job preaching truth uh, during the Holocaust and, and uh, risked his life and, and uh, did a lot of things. Uh, he has a quote uh, that I want to bring to you. Uh, he says, Christianity without discipleship will always be Christianity without Jesus. Christianity without discipleship will always be Christianity without Jesus. If we're not sanctifying ourselves, if we're not being a disciple of Jesus, if we're not following him, we will have a Christianity that is missing Jesus. And Abram here, he sanctifies himself. Life is found in Jesus. He knows it. And he doesn't want to be associated with the things of the world. He sets himself apart. He sanctifies himself to be a follower of God. And you know what happens? When we set ourselves apart to be a follower of God, do you know what God always does? This is awesome. God always reveals more of himself to us. And our life becomes even more and more glorious, which is what the Bible teaches, that we're being transformed from glory to even greater glory as we grow in our relationship with God. And you know what happens to Abraham here? He sanctified himself, and guess what God's going to do? God's going to reveal more of himself to Abraham. This is an awesome study. Let's jump back now and cover these verses that we passed over, and we'll devote the rest of our time to them. Uh, look at verse 18. He has this fascinating encounter with a man named Melchizedek. Uh, everybody say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness. He's going to be our focal point for the rest of our time. Look at this, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Interesting. He was a priest of God, most high. And he blessed him, that's Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of God. Whose name does he tie Abram to? Abram, you belong to God, most high. Blessed be Abram, the one who belongs to God, most high. The possessor of heaven and earth. Wow. We long for the day, by the way, when God possesses both heaven and earth again. Right now, he gave earth to Adam and Eve and gave them dominion over it. Said, you be the possessor of earth. And we've made a mess. We long for the day when God this earth is his. It's only on loan to us. Uh, and Jesus is going to redeem that earth and bring it back under his possession. Uh, blessed be God, uh, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Wow. And look at this. And he, that's Abram, gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Wow, crazy story. Melchizedek is a very interesting man. The question is, who is he? Melchizedek means, the name means, if you break down the, the, the name Melchizedek in its original language, the name means king of righteousness. So here, Abraham suddenly has this encounter with a king of righteousness. We also read in the text that we just read, not only is he the king of righteousness, that's what his name means, but he's also a king of what? Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. Uh, most... Uh, scholars believe and recognize that Salem is the ancient name for Jerusalem. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. 
And he's also the king of Jerusalem. Very interesting. Uh, who is this guy? Uh, furthermore, we see, it says here, look at this, uh, verse 18, one more time, Melchizedek, that's king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's king of peace, king of Jerusalem, brings out bread and wine, and he was a, read the next words with me, what else is he? A priest of God. Crazy. King of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, and a priest of the most high God. What the heck? Who is this guy? By the way, this is the first use of the word priest in the Bible. The Bible won't have a Levitical priesthood for another 600 years, as the priesthood will then come out of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. Uh, Aaron was a Levite, and the priesthood then, Aaron was the first priest, and the, the tribe of Levi, God then designated as the, all the priests will be from the tribe of Levi. It's called a Levitical priesthood. But that won't even come for 600 years after this date. And here is the first use of the word priest. And the priest is Melchizedek, this king of righteousness. Now, what is a priest? Just to get that on, on the table. It's not a guy in a black thing with a white collar. That's not a priest. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and man and between man and God. So here I am, I'm mediating, I'm, re, I'm trying to re, bring God to you, taking God's word and bringing it to you, I'm representing God. After I get done preaching, guess what I do? I now mediate on the other way. I say, Lord, pl please pray for Grant. He's got this going on in his company. He's got this going on in his brilliant man, by the way. Uh, uh, he's got this going on in his family. Uh, I know the age of his kids. And, and now I'm mediating for Grant be, to, to God. So he's a mediator between God and man and between man and God. Does that make sense? And this Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. You're going to get tired of me saying this. King of peace king of Jerusalem, he's also the priest of the Most High God, which is really interesting. Uh, the strange thing is this. Jewish law forbids a man being a king and a priest. Forbids it. Cannot happen. There was a man who tried to be both king and priest. His name was Uzziah. Uh, you can read about him in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26. Uzziah was a brilliant king, very smart. He was a godly man, and he did some incredible things. He sought God uh, with his heart. Uh, as a result, the nation prospered under his leadership. Uh, he expanded the kingdom. He was a great builder. He built towers and strongholds and fortified uh, uh, the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom expanded. It grew. He was a great king. He built a very strong military. Super organized. He had uh, generals and, and different ranks, and they went out in rank, and it was a really organized uh, military. They actually had uh, multiple campaigns at one time where one rank would go over here, another rank would go to this area, and, and he was a brilliant king. But in his success, the Bible tells us, in his success, his heart got lifted up with what? How did you know? His heart got lifted up with pride in his own success. And one day in all of his own success, he goes into the temple. And instead of waiting for the priest, he goes into the temple and he burns incense on the altar to the Lord. And the priest comes into the temple and says, Uzziah, king, your honor. What are you doing? Do not do this. And guess what Uzziah did? 
he got super angry. He got outraged. I'm the king. And as he got angry, guess what God did? God had leprosy break out on his forehead in the temple right then and there. A visual display. It just went, started spreading across his head. He got caught up with pride. I personally believe if when the priest confronted him, he had a choice. If he would have done what? Repented. God would have said, dude, that was a serious, serious matter. Because you cannot be what? King and priest. Uzziah didn't repent. Leprosy breaks out on his head. And he spends the rest of his days never being able to go to the temple again because he's a leper. Living in isolation. Leper, leprosy was like stage four cancer, right? It was just, you're done at that point. And he died a leper. There was another king named Saul who didn't want to wait for the priests. And he wanted to inquire. And so he went in and he inquired of the Lord as a priest and guess what God did the day he did that? He took the kingdom away from King Saul and said, why? Because you cannot be king and priest. Uh, God separated the office for king and priest. Let's think about this. Uh, have you ever heard of the expression separation of church and state? God's idea, by the way. Did you know that? Uh, not a bad thing. A good thing. Uh, God separated the office of king and priest. Here's why. Because God doesn't want the king ruling over the church. God doesn't want the king ruling over religion. Why? Because kings are sinful. And if they take their power and they start usurping that in the church things are going to get ugly. There needs to be checks and balances of power. And we need to respect the checks and balances of power. And it was God's design who, who did separation of church and state. Uh, he didn't allow a king to govern religion. And listen to this. He didn't allow a priest to be a political leader. Something that we might want to think about in our current day church environment. Pastors should be pastors. And politicians should be politicians. There should be a separation here. Now, uh, don't go too far. Separation does not mean that a king did not have to know and uphold God's law. It didn't mean that he didn't have to be religious. It didn't mean that he, separation of church and state means that there's no God in government. No, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, God wanted the king to be so uh, called by God, led by God, walking with God, but he's just not in charge of the church, of religion. But God wanted him to know God and walk with God so much that, that uh, this was, this, the king was, was to be a godly man. So much so that in Deuteronomy it tells us if a man was going to be king, he had to write the entire Bible in his own hand. Look what Deuteronomy says about it. This is Deuteronomy 17. Let me hear you read this. It shall be when he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from, from the one before the priest. In other words, he's going to take the, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the one that the priest has, and he's going to uh, write his own copy in his own hands. And look at verse 19. It shall be with him, and he shall read it how often? All the days of his life, President Biden, <laughs> President Trump, President whoever, uh, 
the word of God, separation of church and state doesn't mean we take God out of government. And that is a lie from the pit of hell that will destroy any nation. Separation of church and state means the president has no authority of what happens in the church. The government has no authority of what happens in the church. And the priest isn't supposed, isn't supposed to be running the government, right? Let's go on, the rest of the verse. That, they, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all of the words of this law and these statutes. Statutes is just another name for teachings or precepts or laws. And look at this, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. That he might not get a big head, think that he's a big wig and that he would just be a humble servant leader who knows my ways and walks in the wisdom of my word. Look at the rest of the verse. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. In other words, that the nation would prosper and flourish and kids would be free to play on the playground instead of worrying about if they should have their body parts chopped off. Crazy. Crazy. Oh, that we would come back to this, right? Um, uh, every king required to write the Bible in their own hand. That would be amazing. And so we know this, right? Separation of church and state. I hope it's clear. It doesn't mean that governing officials don't need to uphold God's laws. As a matter of fact, nothing could be further from the truth. It is vital for the health of a country uh, that, that it happens. Separation simply means that government, government must not govern the church. Uh, Jesus, by the way, is the only one in the Bible who can be both king and priest. And the reason is, is because he has no sin. He's the only one who can handle all that authority and not ruin it. He can be both king and priest because he's righteous. Uh, so question for you, how can Melchizedek be both king and priest? Furthermore, look at what he does. He blesses Abram and he says, blessed be Abram of God most high professor of heaven and earth who gave you this victory. Here's the question. How does Melchizedek know God? How does Melchizedek know Abram? How does Melchizedek know that this God of heaven and earth gave Abram victory? That's presumptuous of you. How do you know that? Who is this guy? Then we look at, not only does he proclaim these very powerful things over Abram, but then Abram gives him a tithe. Now we know in scripture that when you give a tithe, you're giving that a tithe as a tenth of what you have, right? Uh, in the Bible, the tithe belonged to the Lord. God says, listen, I'm giving you your paycheck. I'm giving you your food, your vegetables, your avocado tree. Uh, it's all mine. I'm giving it to you. And 90% uh, of it is yours. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. But that 10% is mine. When I give God a tithe, I'm not giving him anything that is not already his, the Bible tells me. And if I don't give it to him, I'm stealing from God, the Bible tells me. I'm actually stealing what belongs to God. Here's the point. When we give a, a tenth, when we give a tithe, who are we giving to? A man or God? We're giving to God. We're giving back to God what is already his, according to the scripture. And here, Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Who in the heck is this guy? Are you tracking with me? Lastly, we see in verse 18 that after he gives him the tithe, Melchizedek comes and gives him what? Bread and wine. Serves him and his servants bread and wine. 
There was another king who served his disciples bread and wine. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, here's another thing to consider. If Melchizedek was a man, why didn't God just make the covenant with him instead of Abraham? He's already a king of righteousness. That's a big step ahead of this guy who's a pagan living in the Ur of Chaldees. He's already the king of righteousness. He's already the king of peace. He's already the king of Jerusalem. And he's already a priest of the Most High God. Why not just make the covenant with him? Why make it with sinful, pagan, idol-worshipping Abram? Uh, interesting to consider. After this encounter with Abram, Melchizedek disappears from the scene. And the Bible will not mention him again for a thousand and eighty years. Isn't that crazy? The next time he's mentioned is in Psalm 110. And do you know what Psalm 110 is all about? The entire Psalm. Guess who it's about? It's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus, not just at any time, but it's about Jesus when he is the king of Jerusalem, ruling and reigning on planet Earth, governing the entire world as king. Psalm 110. And Melchizedek appears in that psalm. Uh, let's read it. I have it for you on your screen. Um, are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Is this fascinating to you? I hope so. This, we're in for an awesome thing, if you can track with me. Now, Paul said it's hard to understand, so keep your mind engaged. Psalm 110, 1,080 years after what we're reading in Genesis 14, uh, God brings Melchizedek's name up in this psalm about Jesus, who's going to rule and reign on the earth. Um, let me hear you read this. The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to, okay, you don't have to read it. The Lord, uh, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord. Here's the question. Who's writing this psalm? This is a psalm of David. David is the king of Israel. The Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, said to my Lord. Who is David's Lord? King David is the number one man in Israel, and he writes of his Lord. Who is David's Lord? The coming Messiah. David calls the coming Messiah, my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Wow. Yahweh said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, let's go to verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not relent. You, who's the you? Well, that's the David's Lord, David's Messiah. You are a priest forever according to the order, say it with me, of Melchizedek. The next mention of this guy is when we're talking about the Messiah Jesus being Lord over the entire earth, and he says, you're a priest like Melchizedek. Wow. Uh, after uh, Psalm 110, uh, Melchizedek is not mentioned again for another, guess how long? 1,080 years again. We move from Psalm 110, and we move forward another 1,080 years, and we get to the book of Hebrews. And here in the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, we're going to have a little bit of reading to do. So are you with me? Are you up for reading and taking this in? I could have you turn there. I thought it'd be easier to put it on your screens. Uh, look at this passage in Hebrews. This is Hebrews. The last verse of chapter 6 is a verse 20. Uh, and we're going to look at chapter 7 also. So here, uh, chapter 620. The forerunner has entered heaven for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious Melchizedek, he appears with Abram, he disappears for 1,080 years, he appears in David when he writes a prophetic psalm about 
Jesus who will rule and reign over the earth. And now he comes back here uh, when he's talking about Jesus who has entered heaven for us. Uh, let's go to chapter 7 now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Do you understand? Returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem. Then also king of peace. This is who Melchizedek is. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace. Let's go on. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest for how long? Forever. This Melchizedek did not have a genealogy, was without father and mother. Uh, and there are some scholars who say, uh, uh, well, Melchizedek was just a guy. And we just don't know his genealogy. And that's all that means. Okay, I'm going to let you decide. But the passage would say, uh, not only did he not have a genealogy, not only was he without father and mother, but he didn't have beginning of days nor end of life. What king would that ever relate to? Only Jesus, not man. Every man had a beginning of days. Every man had an end of life. Furthermore, what man is made like the son of God? Only Jesus. And what man remains a priest forever? Only Jesus. Uh, powerful, powerful uh, picture of, of who this Melchizedek is. Um, just amazing to consider. Um, Melchizedek was a prefigure of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's very possible he was far more than that. It's very possible that he was what theologians call a Christophany. A Christophany means an actual appearance of Jesus in person in the Old Testament. Which is very interesting, by the way, because Jesus one day was teaching when he was in his ministry on earth, and he was teaching, and he said, he who believes in me will never die, but will have eternal life. And the religious leaders heard Jesus teaching, and they said, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Do you think you're better than Abraham? And Jesus answered their question. Look how he answered it. This is in uh, John chapter 8. Uh, read with me. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abram? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they understood what the I am was. The I am is the tetragrammaton, the, the, the burning bush voice. I am who I am that Moses saw, right? Uh, before Abraham was, I am. When the religious leaders heard that, they took up stones to stone him. Uh, Jesus said, Abraham, put that previous slide up. Uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. When did Jesus see Abraham? When did, excuse me, Abraham see Jesus? Well, perhaps right here. Uh, so some interesting things to look at. Now, the... Uh, we, we need to now say, and I mean no reverence in this, but we need to pass the so what test. Well, so what? Uh, what does this mean? Why did God do all this? Why did Jesus do all this? Why did Jesus show up, if he did, as Melchizedek, as a prefigure of Jesus? For sure, at the very least, Melchizedek is a prefigure of Jesus. 
Uh, I personally, I told myself I wasn't going to tell you this, but I am anyway. I personally believe Melchizedek is, a, is, is Jesus Christ in the flesh, a, a Christophany of, of Jesus. Uh, why did Jesus do this? And friends, I want you to know, it is super encouraging. It is downright brilliant. It is so just profound of our God to do this. Jesus is teaching us something through Melchizedek. Do you know what he's teaching us? He's teaching us that the, Le- that the Levitical priesthood that was going to come is a weak and unprofitable religious system. It's a weak and unprofitable religious system. Let me ask you, how many people ever got saved by all those animal sacrifices they offered? Goose egg, not one. How many people ever went to heaven by all those animal sacrifices they offered? Answer, none. Jesus in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking, hey, what does a man have to do to go to heaven? Jesus says, no man has ever ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who is presently in heaven. Read John chapter 3. You can find it yourself. Jesus said, I am in heaven right now as he's speaking to Nicodemus because Jesus is omniscient. He's, excuse me, omnipresent. Uh, 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 But he said, no one has ascended to heaven. So how many people went to heaven from all those sacrifices? None. How many people went to heaven from all their temple, every, every Sabbath going to temple? None. Why? Because it was a weak and unprofitable religious system. Uh, And can I tell you something? So are all religious systems. Do you know how weak and unprofitable it is for me to stand here and teach you about God? You need a man to tell me about God? Are you kidding me? Oh, no, 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 no. We need a far better priest than this. We need a far better priest than the Levitical priests. Aaron, for crying out loud, the first Levitical priest, the very first priest there was, what did he make? A golden calf and said, this is Yahweh. Let's worship it. There might be something unprofitable about this priesthood. Do you know what's unprofitable? The men who are priests. We're all sinners. And we can't bring anybody to God. We need a better high priest. And I find it so fascinating that 650 years before God even brings the Levitical priesthood, he says, I want you to know something. This priesthood that I'm going to bring is going to be an imperfect religious system. It's going to be an imperfect priesthood. It's not going to be able to do what I want, what what I need. We need a far better priest, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Uh, Last passage for you is in Hebrews chapter 7. Look at this one. Back to Hebrews 7. Uh, A different priest, like Melchizedek, has appeared. His name? Jesus. He became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi. He met the requirement of being a priest by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And we tried to destroy it. We killed him. By our sin. And yet, even that couldn't destroy his priesthood, uh, a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Levi. Let's go on. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside, read this with me, because it was weak and useless For the law never made anything perfect. Oh my goodness. The law never made anything perfect. And if you are trying to be good by your religious performance, I have to tell you something. 
you are in a insufficient religion. It cannot, it, it's unprofitable. Look how he finishes this passage. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Something that the previous priesthood and the previous religious system could never actually do. We can actually draw near to God now. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants, that's the Levites, became priests without an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. Stop there. Do you want to know what the oath was? It's an amazing oath. Take a look. Here it is. God said, the Lord took an oath and swore he will not break his vow. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Pointing us back to Psalm 110 where God takes this oath. And oh, how amazing all of this is, right? Uh, I hope you get it. I hope you grasp it. I know those are deep waters, but man, it's incredibly freeing. It means that all my religion in the world will never make me right with God. I need a better high priest, and God has provided one. His name is Jesus. He showed up before as Melchizedek, which simply means a king of righteousness, a king of peace. By the way, which comes first? You cannot have peace without righteousness. We can't bring peace on this land until we first bring righteousness to this land. A king of righteousness, a king of peace, a king of Jerusalem, and the priest of the most high God. Only one person can hold all of those offices. His name is Jesus, and he's worthy of all of our praise. Shall we stand? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website, at themissionchurch.net. God bless.